This is fantastic. This is just great news, okay? Everything's working fantastically, as one would expect, given how I uh, how embarrassed I was at the um, at the problems I had on Friday's show. And I worked all through the weekend to get them straightened out. And now, we can get started with this. One of stage one. Welcome to it, ladies and gentlemen. You know, among the most embarrassing moments in this country's history, perhaps even in the history of humanity, were those pertaining to the canonization of St. George Floyd. St. Floyd, patron saint of fentanyl armed robbery and counterfeiting, was beatified in the year 2020 following his death of a drug overdose. Since our country had long ago given up on the concept of truth and allowed itself to instead be ruled by force and fraud, the undisputed nature of his cause of death was allowed to be cast aside and instead replaced by a narrative conjured by the minds of the most dishonest and violent people in the world. You see, St. Floyd had died of this drug overdose while he was resisting arrest, near certainly as a consequence of his effort to avoid a possession charge by swallowing the drugs which were supposed to last him into the next day. He was, moments prior, caught passing a counterfeit bill to a small business owner in order to steal cigarettes from that business owner. And when this had the predictable result of attracting the attention of law enforcement, St. Floyd set himself on the path to martyrdom by fighting the officers. Video showed St. Floyd complaining that he could not breathe well prior to being pinned to the ground. Whether this was because the fentanyl had already begun to suppress his respiratory function or because he believed this would make his escape easier, we can only speculate. But we do know that by the time he was on the ground beneath the merciful hands of Derek Chauvin, the complaints had long since begun. On account of this, and since St. Floyd was a large man with a history of violence who was still struggling with police, The officers taking him into custody did as their training commanded and continued to restrain St. Floyd while he continued complaining about his capacity to breathe. When St. Floyd ceased to fight them, they loosened their restraint, but by then he was unconscious and soon to die. It might go without saying that those who find themselves gleefully at war with civilization blamed the officers. Clearly, they would have us believe that as soon as a criminal says he cannot breathe, the officers have a moral and legal obligation to set him loose upon the citizenry he had victimized just moments ago and habitually over the course of his lengthy criminal career. 
The ordered liberty characteristic of Western civilization, requiring force as it does for its maintenance, cannot be allowed to stand in their view. Violence must only be exercised in the most chaotic and dangerous manner possible by the least responsible people in our society. Any notion of controlled and reasonable force is what they deem white supremacy, and this organized system of control is the only form of oppression they will not abide. So it was not at all surprising that these people set to their routine of rioting, looting, and burning down buildings prior to any investigation of the incident. What was slightly more surprising to all but the most well-informed was the rapidity with which supposedly responsible authorities joined in the forces of chaos. The cause of St. Floyd's martyrdom was never in dispute. He had consumed a lethal dose of fentanyl, and this was discovered quite early in the investigation. No injury attributable to the officers that could have caused his death was discovered in the autopsy. St. Floyd was just another dead junkie criminal so far as the science was concerned. But trusting the science has little limited utility in post-truth America. If by the science you mean Dr. Fauci, it is doctrine, and to contradict this is blasphemy. If it disproves racist police murdering blacks for sport, it is white supremacy and must be discarded. So began America's hazing ritual as she entered the fraternity of third world nations. Monuments were built, politicians kneeled, shoplifting was legalized, riots and arson and even murder were considered mostly peaceful by our masters in the press. All who dissented were subjected to ritualistic torture of various sorts, all in service to one more dead junkie criminal. The officers were, for all intents and purposes, crucified. The city paid the dead junkie criminal's family $27 million. And with this, the total inversion of our legal system was all but complete. For the rest of that year, as Americans were prohibited from attending church, locked in their homes, laid off from their jobs, put out of business, and conscripted into the black block with mask mandates in the name of COVID-19, the one sort of public gathering that was permitted were race riots. These, we were told, were the only cure to the only public health crisis more serious than COVID-19, that being, of course, white supremacy. You might recall the virus was so dangerous and the racism so pervasive that these were the excuses offered by Mark Elias and his band of licensed subversives as they set about on a sue-and-settle scheme to abolish all fraud protections in our elections. While race riots were good, clean fun for the whole family and liquor stores, abortion clinics, and marijuana dispensaries were considered essential services, polling places, by contrast, joined with the churches as being far too dangerous for human beings to be found anywhere near. And so every name and address ever entered into a voter registration database and a few not-so-registered received ballots in the mail. Signature verification, obviously one more relic of a racist past, was necessarily abolished with no regard for legitimacy. Democrats demanded, quite literally, that every vote be counted, in some contrast to those days now forgotten, when there was such a thing as eligibility for the privilege. To the casual observer, the subversion of all anti-fraud measures might have seemed odd for the Democrats, who had warned with some hysteria that Donald Trump and every villain willing to vote for him were lawless criminals who would do anything to maintain their grip on power. 
were they really so concerned about this? They might have taken measures to make our elections much harder to cheat at, but they assured us through their friends in the press that the racism and the sniffles simply made this impossible and that while Donald Trump would collude with foreign powers and sell out his country for the simple joy of being admired by an Eastern European dictator and while his supporters were willing to risk prison and death for the simple rush of assaulting vulnerable demographics, Surely democracy was just so sacred that none would dare take advantage of this opportunity to steal the most powerful elected office on the planet. And with this narrative so pervasively echoed through all the proper channels and a few not-so-proper channels, I might note, the 2020 election was conducted. Despite the danger, record numbers of voters appeared at their polling place and all new records were set for use of the Postal Service to deliver votes subject to no verification whatsoever. With this tremendous flood of public opinion being so overwhelming, as the counting went on into the night, leaky toilets were reported as water main breaks and all manner of other excuses were made in the middle of the night to stop counting and exclude observers. With all these anomalies accepted by our masters in the press as a new normal, it is perhaps unsurprising that a man who barely campaigned, excited nobody, and offended even his core constituencies routinely became the most popular president in the history of the United States. At which point the race riots came to a rather anticlimactic conclusion. Those appropriately skeptical of the veracity of these claims were deemed thought criminals. They were banned from social media, fired from their jobs, ostracized socially, and ultimately hunted down by federal authorities and thrown into prison should they have been so bold as to register their skepticism at the nation's capital. All in the name of one more dead junkie criminal, St. George Floyd. Peace be upon him. But not upon you, dear listener. Your reward for this was crime at home and war abroad. All for a lie. And I do mean for a lie. These things did not happen as an unfortunate side effect of a narrow deception. All was done in service to that very widespread deception. And there was not a soul in this country who bothered to inform themselves of the facts who did not know that this was a lie. In fact, the truth was so widely known that to call this deception... Almost defies use of the term, doesn't it? If everyone utters the same fiction and everyone knows it is fiction, are they lying? Or is it just the modern race hysteria version of an atheist saying bless you when a person sneezes? In recent days, Tucker Carlson acted like it was news that an autopsy showed Floyd's lethal blood concentration of fentanyl. He mentioned parenthetically, almost as a footnote, that this was known shortly after the incident. The fact has gained new steam in conservative media circles since it was brought up during, of all things, a sexual discrimination lawsuit in the county attorney's office where this fraud was perpetrated. A female employee of the prosecutor's office, like others who dissented from the decision to hang these cops out to dry, was punished for not going along with the scam enthusiastically enough but unlike her male colleagues, she attributed this to sex discrimination because that's what our legal system has turned into, a demographic battleground for scraps of the American carcass. Now, almost four years later, as these ancient documents remind us of what was known the whole time Joe Biden's militia was terrorizing the country in the lead-up to his landslide election victory... 
It is suddenly respectable for conservative ink types to question the wisdom of throwing cops in prison for arresting drug-addicted career felons. As you know, dear listener, I try pretty hard to cut conservatives all the slack I can on this show and elsewhere. If they had given half that courtesy to Derek Chauvin, we might not be in this mess today. I became a regular Rush Limbaugh listener in 2020. I had heard his show before that, and I understood that he was talented, but I found myself enthralled to that man while I was in jail. That was the best three hours of my day for basically an entire year. When I heard Rush Limbaugh say, I hope they give it to him good and hard, I was furious like you would not believe I felt like my best friend had just announced he was sleeping with my wife. It struck me as that category of betrayal to hear him say that. I watched that video, like, in the days after it happened on TV. And I've watched it since I came home, too. Chauvin's knee was not on the guy's neck. It was on his back. I have seen the training handbook for their department, and what they did was in line with their training. These facts are not and have never been in serious dispute. The trial of Derek Chauvin was a fraud and a stain upon our legal system in the same category as Trump's rape trial and the Charlottesville Unite the Right cases. These are, or at least ought to be, sources of shame for everyone involved in the legal profession. And they ought be no less shameful to conservative media personalities who, despite having every opportunity to rise up against this before it came to their door, allowed me and James Fields and Alex Ramos and Richard Preston and Jacob Goodwin and Daniel Borden and Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael and William Roddy Bryan and Kyle Rittenhouse and too many others to consider listing in a two-hour broadcast— to be thrown to juries comprised largely of wolves, with overzealous prosecutors proven willing to engage in preposterous deceptions to achieve indefensible outcomes. Only when it came time for them to face the same fate did they suddenly view these abuses as worthy of their now much lauded bravery. Not that I suppose we have much right to expect otherwise. In our very Declaration of Independence, it was noted that, quote, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. And for our conservative friends, these evils were sufferable then, but not anymore. Later in that same declaration, America's founders wrote of their English brethren that, quote, We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in peace, friends. And this begs the question of our conservative friends. 
which shall it be? Because the war is here, pal. We have no such luxuries, peace. The conflict is visited upon us quite independently of our choosing, and I count myself among the few who would still bring you into the fold. But if a man must spend half a decade in a cage before you care to mention the proof of his innocence, which has been known the whole time, then speak not to me of your bravery nor your conscientiousness. Here is all you need to know about politics in the year 2023, my fellow Republican. If somebody complains about racism in the current year, this is evidence of a crime, okay? It's not an effort to help the downtrodden. It's not an effort to right a historical wrong. It is evidence of malicious intent on the part of the speaker. And if you give it anything, if you... If you say America has a complicated history or you say, well, the legacy is whatever it is. You're an accomplice. Cut it out. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let me go say hello to everybody over here. It's this thing. What happened here? And I'm going to play that, and then I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to take your calls at 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program, and you should certainly give me a call, and we will uh, we'll have a chat about whatever it is you like. Um, let's go. That one is a little bit... All my, all my best of clips from... <laughs> all my best of clips are, like, too long. I'm going to play uh, part of the Unknown Soldier bit, and uh, we're not going to play the whole thing. I'll be back in a couple minutes. Today being Memorial Day, it might be fitting to speak a bit about military service. Of course, the martial character of human conflict emerges elsewhere besides the military, and perhaps it would be still more fitting to speak in such a broader generality. There is just no shortage of bold men who will not be hailed as heroes despite courageous sacrifice, be their names known or not. Some, the news records as villains, and our task is, in some measure, to see history do them greater justice. The United States is not the only country with a monument known as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, or something to that effect. No culture survives without reverence for its warriors. Some do a better job than others of recovering their dead, but whatever their military prowess, combat is unpredictable and people go missing. It is both fitting and important, then, that there be some shrine to their sacrifice. In the United States, ours is at Arlington National Cemetery. It is guarded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, by soldiers from the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. They perform a visually impressive routine, changing guard and sentinels, as they are known, have a creed which goes as follows. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted. In the responsibility bestowed on me, never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain perfection. Through the years of diligence and praise and the discomfort of the elements, I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. It is he who commands the respect I protect, his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounded by well-meaning crowds by day and alone in the thoughtful peace of night, this soldier will, in honored glory, rest under my eternal vigilance. While there are over 4,000 unknown soldiers buried at Arlington, the monument contains the remains of but three. One crypt contains the remains of a soldier from World War I, another the remains of two soldiers, one from the Second World War and one from the Korean War. An empty third crypt represents the missing service members from Vietnam. 
When power changes hands, perhaps it would be best to leave Arlington Memorial to those who died in uniform overseas. But it might also be fitting to establish a new one for those who died or otherwise had their lives destroyed right here at home. The menace we face has surely left more than 4,000 corpses in its wake almost entirely unremarked upon. Many millions more yet walk, but are no less dead, disappeared, and forgotten. I discovered not long ago an old friend of mine had died. To the gentleman who emailed me about it, thank you. It's not entirely clear to me what happened, but I knew him to take a pain pill now and then. It seems he got a bad one, one of those fentanyl poisoning stories you hear about all too frequently in the news. He was by no means a soldier, though no more inclined to run from a fight than to start one. He had just happened to catch some shrapnel from one of the lethal weapons being dumped on our streets by foreign adversaries every day. The people who stand up to those foreign adversaries, they might fairly be described as combatants in a war. They are not hailed as heroes. They are not granted a place in a national cemetery. They are called the most hateful of things and demonized in our press and fired from their jobs and denied the protections of our laws. I don't mean to lower in any way the experiences of the warfighter by making the comparison. They rightly have national holidays and resources allocated to them. They enjoy, with few exceptions, the reverence of the population, and I'm not viscerally opposed to punishing those exceptions. If anything, they deserve more than we give them, and it is quite a stain on our nation when we hear about veteran suicides and the despair that often accompanies attempts to get help from the VA. Our country should aim to place fewer burdens on our uniformed warriors by making more cautious decisions in our foreign policy and by making an organization like the Tunnel to Towers Foundation utterly irrelevant by making sure that they and their families are returned to all reasonable levels of comfort once they have done their jobs. But it is one thing to risk one's life in combat and know that all the energies of the nation are with you. It is quite another to make precisely the same risk without those benefits or even... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to uh, Surreal Politics. Let me stop that right there. And we'll, uh, we'll get to the news. And, of course, your calls at 217-688-1433. So, as I was saying, this story comes back into the headlines as a consequence of all things of a sexual discrimination lawsuit in the county attorney's office over there where this happened. Story at Revolver News, this won't come as a shock to you, and it won't to you, dear listener, because, of course, you've been paying attention to us and, uh, and people like us who understand these things, but it won't come as a shock to you. But nearly everything that you were told about the George Floyd case and the conviction of Officer Derek Chauvin was a lie. Newly released documents confirm that George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose, not from asphyxiation. In other words, George Floyd was not murdered. And I have here, I'll show you this. This is a share screen with the cam. And we can take a look at this here document, which shows uh, life-threatening, no life-threatening injuries are detected. No facial, oral, mucosal, or conjunctival petechi, petechi, whatever that is. Uh, No injuries of anterior muscles or neck or laryngeal structures. No scalp, soft tissue, skull, or brain injuries. No chest wall, soft tissue injuries, rib fractures other than a single rib fracture from CPR. Vertebral column injuries or visceral injuries. Incision and subcutaneous dissection of posterior and lateral neck, shoulders, back, flanks, and buttocks negative for occult trauma. But down here under this section of toxicology, which is to say toxins in your blood, blood and novel psychoactive substances screens, 
fentanyl, 11 nanograms per milliliter, norfentanyl, 5.6 nanograms per milliliter, methamphetamine, THC, and, uh, and caffeine, and cotinine, whatever that is. And so uh, St. Floyd uh, was carrying a lethal dose of fentanyl. And that's what killed him. Despite this knowledge, both the prosecution and the court still permitted Derek Chauvin to be wrongfully convicted for a crime he did not commit. He was a sacrificial lamb led to slaughter to appease the bloodthirsty BLM mob and support the mainstream media's lies. Even as some of us began questioning the mainstream narrative, media outlets, including Fox News, threw Chauvin to the wolves. The man never stood a fighting chance. (laughs) Yeah, here's a good one. So actually, I'll bring this back up again. This is uh, Jack Posobiec points out that Sean Hannity, hey, what are you doing? I don't want that. I want this, okay? Sean Hannity said... (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty funny. I wasn't I wasn't on Twitter when this happened, so I didn't know about this, but I knew what he was saying because I was watching the show. <laughs> we all know the damage dirty cops can cause to the whole country, a country as a whole. The fact is, as I have been saying every single day, the horrific actions of one officer and the inaction of three officers resulted in the death of an innocent man, a fellow American, and this should never have happened. Says Sean Hannity the uh, standard bearer of Republican talking points. It's a discredit to his party. As it stands now, Chauvin is a political prisoner. He's been judged not only by an activist legal system that no longer follows the rule of law, but instead goes by the court of public opinion. In this case, it seems the verdict on Chauvin was influenced by more, more by public outcry and a sketchy viral image than through examination of the facts. It's clear that the rabid left-wing mob placed tremendous pressure on prosecutors, the jury, and the entire court system. Quoting from Alpha News, new court documents exposed the extreme pressure prosecutors faced in Hennepin County to charge Derek Chauvin and three other former Minneapolis police officers in the death of George Floyd. Several attorneys opposed charging the other three officers and withdrew from the case due to professional and ethical rules. Now hundreds of pages of sworn testimony of Hennepin County attorneys and other county employees that took place this summer have been made public. The depositions were conducted in relation to a lawsuit filed by Amy Sweezy, who was one of the office's top prosecutors against former county attorney Mike Freeman. Sweezy is suing after settling a claim with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, alleging that Freeman engaged in sex discrimination and retaliation in the office. Hennepin County agreed to pay $190,000 to settle the Department of Human Rights claim. Freeman left the office in January, and Sweezy resigned from the current county attorney's office in April. According to the new documents, Senior Assistant County Attorney Patrick Lofton, who worked on police use of force cases with Sweezy, said the relationship between Sweezy and Freeman soured after Lofton and Sweezy withdrew from the officer's cases formally on June 3, 2020. Lofton explained the pressure they were under to file charges. The Chauvin stuff is really the catalyst of this, Lofton said, according to a transcript from his June 6th deposition. There was extreme premium pressure. Yes, the city was burning down, Lofton said. He explained that while he wanted the case charged and believed there was, quote, probable cause to charge Mr. Chauvin with third-degree murder, 
The pressure from outside the office was insane, and he had reservations about charging the other three cops. There were no injuries to George Floyd, and everyone knew it. I don't need to read the whole thing from Raw Egg Nationalist here. You get the idea. The bottom line is George Floyd's cause of death was a fentanyl overdose, not asphyxiation from Derek Chauvin's knee. And don't forget, this fact was established very early in the investigation. Yet the narrative of George Floyd being killed by a police officer was absolutely crucial for fueling the BLM revolution. And indeed, it did just that. Derek Chauvin should be set free immediately. At the very least, he needs a new trial right away, as it currently stands He's been convicted for a murder that, according to unearthed evidence, never actually took place. Those who were aware of this and allowed the conviction to proceed should face severe repercussions, including anybody in the media who knew the truth. Now, I don't know, you know, when when uh, when these things are written, when these things are written at Revolver News, they don't tell us necessarily who wrote it. But I wonder what kind of in the dark fool wrote this, because I knew this and I was in jail when it happened. Okay. This was this was said. This was not a secret. Okay, you could not be charged with a man's murder and not find out in discovery that he le- had a lethal dose of fentanyl in him. So this is a bunch of nonsense that anybody didn't know this. I knew it. And this guy's claiming to be some kind of news outlet. Oh, wow, these newly discovered documents. These documents aren't newly discovered. You know, when George Floyd is arrested in that video, I should I should have pulled the video up. We could play it here. You know, He's arrested in that video. If somebody wants to send me the link to the George Floyd video, I'll play it. If I search YouTube or something, I'm going to get a million stupid things. If somebody's got a link to, like, the video or or a video compilation that is, like, the definitive thing without a lot of commentary or that I can mute the commentary, I'll play the thing on the, on the broadcast. But I saw this, okay? And, like, the guy is being arrested, and he's and they're trying to put him into the car. He's fighting to not go in the car, and he's screaming, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Well, like, I think that they figured this out with the, um, what's his name? Uh, Eric Garner, that's the name I'm, I'm looking for. So that's when the whole I can't breathe thing became, like, the, the, the communist slogan, right? Oh, well, when he says he can't breathe, that means you got to let him go. That's the magic word, officer, don't you know? You're not allowed to arrest people if they say they can't breathe. You just got to let them, you got to spring them. Now, you know, this guy, they found drugs, like, in the car, okay? So, like, they're trying to get him in the car. He's resisting getting in the car. They found fentanyl in the police car. So this guy's trying to get rid of his drugs. What's going on? So my what I think probably happened is this guy ate the damn drugs, okay? And it's not uncommon for them to do that, by the way. He put the drugs in his mouth because he didn't want to get charged with the drugs. And then he's like, oh, wait a second. I just ate a lethal dose of fentanyl. You better let me go. But I can't cop to it because I'm a, I don't want to go back to prison. I know what prison's like. I go to prison all the time because I'm George Floyd. And so he's like, hey, you know, mama, I'm coming to see you, whatever. And then he takes his little nap and he's gone. And that's like the best thing that ever happened to the Democrat Party. You know, it should almost go without saying. They're so happy about this. The rituals, right? Do you remember like Nancy Pelosi? She was in some kind of like fake African garb, took a knee in the halls of Congress over this. Oh, 
Oh, what a disgusting display this whole thing was. I watched that whole thing. I'll tell you. I've said many times, you know, the stuff that I didn't get to cover while I was gone, boy. Oh, man. I watched this whole thing unfold, and I was just shocked. You know, I, um, I've mentioned before when I was in jail, I got like a cleaning job, okay? And the, and the cleaning job was I got to like, I, I would clean a housing unit at night. After everybody locked in for the evening, I'd, I'd, they'd let me out of my cell, and then i basically clean up the housing unit, and then I'd be able to watch TV by myself. Which was kind of good because, you know, the, the type of people you find in jail are not usually big fans of the Fox News channel, say. So if I didn't get to watch, you know, the Fox News evening lineup, which, you know, depending on what was going on, some nights I did, sometimes I didn't, I'd watch the reruns overnight. And then for like months and months and months, I didn't get to watch the reruns of the Fox News evening lineup because there was too much live coverage of the nightly riots. I watched that thing happen from the Stratford County Correctional Facility in Dover, New Hampshire. And I was like, <laughs> I'm off the street for 10 minutes and the whole world falls apart, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, I was, when I got arrested in January of 2020, I guess they locked the whole country down in March. Like, I was like the end of January, so two months I was in before... They locked everything down. The COVID nonsense took over. And one month into that, two no, two months into that, a month and change, a month and change into this COVID nonsense where you can't go to church, you can't go to work, you can get an abortion, you go to the marijuana dispensary, you buy as much liquor as you want, but you can't go to church, you can't go to work. All you can do is murder your children and get high. That's all you're allowed to do in the beginning of 2020. And so, you know, George Floyd, you know, he picks up on the hint. So he decides to go out and do some drugs and steal because that's still allowed in May of 2020. Uh, But, you know, this cop, he didn't get the memo that theft had been legalized. So when he hears that there's some criminal with a, you know, rap sheet a mile long passing counterfeit bills, you know, he doesn't understand yet that this is the new normal, right? That the new money issuing authority of the fentanyl junkies who printed up in their, in their, you know, I doubt he owns a printer wherever he came up with this fake piece of paper. And so he goes and he says, hey, you know, you're not the Federal Reserve. What's going on with the fake money? And he's like, I can't breathe. And he's like, what are you talking about? You can't breathe. This, you're standing right in front of me talking. <clears throat> and shockingly enough, this doesn't go so well for Mr. Floyd. And I don't think it was 24 hours before the riots started, right? I mean, I remember watching this. Like, there was like a target. It was like broad daylight. Broad daylight. They're in the target in Philadelphia. Guys are just pulling the car up front. A bunch of maniacs come out with big screen TVs and all manner of stuff. Load it up. <laughs> this, is, this is social justice in May 2020, right? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> yeah, right? 
It's exactly what you would expect to happen. This is what they do. They're like, hey, don't criticize us. We'll throw everybody in jail who has a problem with this. And then it just goes completely spirals out of control. And, you know, much of this time, I'm thinking, I'm going to get out of here pretty soon. (laughs) No such luck. This just gets worse and worse and worse. Amazing. And now, four years later almost, it's almost three and a half years later. It's like now it's respectable for conservative ink to be like, hey, the autopsy conducted four years ago said, you know, what everybody was getting banned from Twitter for saying was that when fentanyl junkies eat their stash to avoid prison, sometimes it turns out poorly for them. But St. George. (laughs) Amazing. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Here's another fun one. Here's a piece over at Asylum Magazine. Let my right hand forget on Israel and the dissident right. I read this earlier today, and I thought this was kind of amusing. In my early youth, for a reason now, he, he, the, um, it, this is titled, the subtitle here, the heading, is The Hebrew Conservative, which explains to you the man's perspective, which won't be surprising as we get into the story. In my early youth, for reasons not completely clear to me, I was a member of the Not Cool Kids. Our lowly cast was a jolly one, a band of misfits having a nice time. Interestingly, despite our lowliness, we had a, our own internal hierarchy. At the top were people like me, almost cool and equipped with partial access to the gatherings of the truly cool. At the bottom, we had the absolutely uncool. At the very bottom, there was a weirdo beyond uncoolness. Our childish yet complex association was also supported by an innocent vow. All for one and one for all. Should any of us be harassed by the cool kids, all of us would rush to the injured party's defense. This rule was taken for granted for some time until it was awkwardly put to the test. The attack was rather civilized. The cool kids had simply decided to ostracize one of us. No one would be allowed to utter a single word to him. He would be treated like a non-existent void. This should have been our chance, all for one and one for all. Challenge the cool kids, ignore the ostracism, fight the blasphemous power, right? Wrong. Unfortunately, the one to be ostracized was the weirdo at the bottom of the ladder. Why would we risk our station for that guy? Thus, shamefully, we had obeyed our elite masters and did not stick out our necks on behalf of the poor weirdo. Why? Well, we explained to ourselves, he really is annoying. Besides, when we had imagined a defense pact, it was supposed to be for kids like yours truly, or at least another almost cool kid. It was never really intended for the bottom of the barrel losers. Doesn't the annoying kid sort of have it coming anyhow? A person with some mileage knows the situation above is very common in life. We vow to love our children no matter what, yet we uncomfortably end up with the fat nerd. I was supposed to be attending baseball games, not trombone recitals. 
We make a pledge to always be by our mother's side, imagining the nurturing angel of our youth. Yet often, when we are truly needed, the angel is gone. Only a shell remains, perhaps demented, requiring love and commitment that are much harder to give. Outside the world of abstractions, there is always a gap between our noble fantasies and the way they are tested. Yet virtue lies exactly in that gap. Since I am from Israel, says the writer, the gap between my right-wing noble pledges and the way they are now tested in Israel is rather narrow, but for many on the dissident right, the gap is obviously wide. For years, even decades, if you are a truly committed paleoconservative, we've been warning through essays and podcasts and memes that the great test for Western man lies in his ability to fend off the threat of the masses of the third world. Billions must perish, the most important graph in the world. We've been preparing our minds for the viciousness required for the protection of our borders, for the necessary cruelty of sending people away, of forcing them out, of killing when necessary. And here is a test at hand. (laughs) Israel, a nation state where people consume frappuccinos and make software, meaning a sort of Western place, is attacked and can only survive by blocking out the third world. Perhaps only by killing great numbers of the third world's masses. Why? To exist. There is no nice way to go about it. Yet on the dissident right, instead of a manly sentiment to finish them off no matter what, we are mostly welcome to a menu of bizarre irony. Oh, this is not our struggle, as if anybody was asked to take up arms. But what about our borders, as if two causes cannot be supported, at least morally at the same time? LOL, Ben Shapiro takes the Hitler pill, as if the strongest motivation among our crowd is to not be Ben Shapiro. You know what I mean. I suspect this has to do with the phenomenon I described above. When we are tested, it is never in a way that we had imagined the test. A civilized world versus third world attack has come, but it is not an attack on the Sistine Chapel or the sublime cathedral at the Rhymes. At Rhymes, sorry. It is not even an attack on Romania. Are they even European? Seem quasi-Turkish to me. Instead, it is an attack on dusty old Israel with its perpetual appeals for aid and its coterie of boomer supporters from Dick Cheney to Nikki Haley. Totally uncool, totally not the way it was supposed to be. A Twitter knight of the West should stick his neck out for Venice, not for Patak Tikva. Continuing the tale from my childhood, I should mention that I, the almost cool kid, was also eventually ostracized. Not immediately, but my genuine lack of coolness had gradually become more and more apparent until, due to a minor trespass, I forever lost my access to the truly cool. The struggles of the uncool are, alas, coming to a border near you. Near us. When Europe is flooded not by millions, but hundreds of millions, what do you think it will look like? Europe will have to violently put people on boats and ship them away, but nobody will take such people back, so Europe will have to conquer a bridgehead in Libya and force the migrants to remain there. The bridgehead will shortly be attacked by mortar and rocket fire and all sorts of terrorism, and thus it will have to be expanded and fortified, almost like a settlement. How do you think a sincere attempt to stave off mass immigration in America is going to play out? Are you prepared? 
Innocent people will have to be put on trains and shipped off to Mexico. Mexico will surely resist, so we will have to conquer a security zone, how Lebanese, and block all migrants to remain there. The security zone will remain constantly attacked by cartels, rogues, and desperate hundreds of millions that will surely wash upon Mexico's territory in a frantic attempt to cross north. If we are willing to protect our posterity in America and in Europe, we must indeed steal ourselves. We need to cultivate an appropriate mindset. Israel is now the great rehearsal for this. We will eventually need to do precisely what Israel is trying to do. And so, while nobody should be expected to donate blood or treasure for the struggle of others, the manly reactionary sentiment, the dissident sentiment, should be let Israel finish them off. If Israel succeeds, perhaps we can succeed too. If Israel succumbs under the pressure of the international community, a similar fate most likely awaits us here in the West. While this august magazine is surely only visited by those of noble inclinations, I want to address a very unnoble phenomenon I've become acutely aware of. That is, the bright comet of our industrious podcasters and essayists drags behind a long tail of chandalas. An unattractive, lowly throng of people who are based only in the sense of base origins and upbringing. I've discovered this reality mostly in discussions with Europeans and especially British people, dwellers of the slums of Manchester who sound like oafs addicted to potato chips and rent control invoke elite theory against me as self-christened experts on Pareto and Mosca. Very quickly, thanks to probably an exposure to a few pages from Kevin McDonald's derivatives, these same people accuse me of pill pole and subversion. And shortly after the conversation devolves into wishes that I drown in my own Jewish blood or be bled like a Jewish pig. Meaning, at that Shandala level, the Knights of the West become indistinguishable from any Mesopotamian e-girl named Tashfin or Malika, ululating with passionate zeal about the destruction of the Jews. Indeed, in any su many such dissident Twitter spaces, you find an agitated Irish expert in Jewish subversion side by side with the She-Syrians. Shandalas are Shandalas since the days of the Roman mobs, but perhaps there is a lesson to be learned here by men of sense. Normal people with jobs and families and functioning lives should not feel comfortable with the company of dregs calling for Jews to bleed like pigs. As reactionary gentlemen, we should not be consorting with lower sorts, even under an imaginary umbrella of dissidents. The Shandela-level dissidence is the opposite of any aristocratic restoration, especially aesthetically. This has to do with a manly sentiment that we above all must cultivate. A final word regarding the dissident podcast sphere. I have a young niece who would once dreamed of becoming a fashion designer and now dreams of becoming a YouTube star. Our bloggers and essayists happily have achieved my niece's dream. Good for them, and I am often entertained by their words and videos and learn something new here and there. But it's important not to rise above our stations. A truly educated person, by traditional definition, should command several languages, possess a solid mathematical equation, and be inculcated in the treasures of our civilization. Think Roger Scruton. Lacking that, most of us can mostly talk sometimes sensibly, but mostly superficially and without much nuance. Many of us live within a Dunning-Kruger effect. We read some Schmidt and Pareto, or Burnham. I don't know anybody who's read Pareto's original thousands of pages, definitely not in Italian. 
And then we say things very confidently about elite theory and bioethics and the passing of the great race, but it's all just words. Sadly, in many cases, these are the words of men who are relatively numerically illiterate and are thus unable to assign a measure of probability to the things they say, meaning they are prone to exaggerations. This only leads to a greater pretense of confidence, which is then passed on to the witless chandalas. Higher math is almost unheard of, but I would recommend such training before diving into Schmidt and Pareto. Those who have wrestled with the differential equations are acutely aware of Hegelian inconclusive pressures of variables in their derivatives and can thus only mock with melancholy such juvenile pretensions of certainty. May God and his angels protect us all. And that, you know, as you might have gathered, is fairly well written and also comically uninformed, or I would not say uninformed so much as deceptive. <laughs> the man is clearly trying to trick his audience. I don't know how many of you might have noticed that. <clears throat> he delves into all this nonsense about math and name-dropping old authors and stuff. Oh, they read a few pages of Kevin McDonald, and, and they make Pareto distribution equations. And by the way, let me just move on to something else, because these guys are illiterate. You know, I actually agree with a lot of the sentiment here, okay? You know, you've heard me talk. I don't like this noble savage nonsense. I'm not with it, and I don't think it makes us look good, okay? <laughs> if you got, you know, I understand why people are upset with the, with the Jewish state. Okay? That makes perfect sense to me. I don't actually disagree with those people all that much. What I disagree with is this noble savage nonsense where we're like, hey, you guys who put the lawnmower engines on the back of the umbrella and went and shot a bunch of kids, you guys are fantastic. That's stuff I'm not actually down with. And when we do that, we look really bad and we invite ourselves to be mocked by people like this who turn around and trick the uninformed into thinking that they're the higher intellectuals, right? Well, they're not. This guy's a liar, and he knows it. He uses phrases like elite theory. Well, who's talking about elite theory, pal? Who said anything about elite theory? I don't hear, uh, I don't hear the, um, he mentioned this Irish agitator. I think he's referring to a man by the name of Keith Woods, who's gotten pretty popular on Twitter lately. And I don't think he says a whole lot about elite theory. I think he's talking about behavior that is very common among Jewish people and the impact it has on, above all, immigration. And if you decide to go and attack the people who are attacking Israel and you don't mention that, you might be accused of deception, credibly. And you actually do a great job of feeding into precisely what it is that you're complaining about, right? You know, I went some dark places, you might know. And part of what preceded that darkness was asking people, hey, could you, like, refute these things that I'm hearing? <laughs> I I was here, people were calling into my uncensored show and telling me things that I was like, this can't be, it, no. 
what, you guys are Nazis? Get away from me. What are you talking about? And I went to people like intellectuals who I respected, and I said, hey, help me out. Silence, silence, silence. You know, nobody wants to debate anti-Semites. Part of the problem, you know, I mean, to the extent, you know, if you're an anti-Semite, it's not a problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, you know, if you're somebody who thinks the anti-Semites are, you know, uh, if you're somebody who thinks like the anti-Semites are like a problem with society, you know, you might do well to engage them intellectually, right? You might do well to point out the errors that they're making instead of coming up with new phraseology to describe what they're talking about and invoking the names of authors who have nothing to do with the subject matter and talking about math. And if you don't do that, then you might consider yourself an embarrassment to your publication. At the least. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And if not, I am going to, uh, I'm going to wrap it up, ladies and gentlemen. So let's go over here. I've got a $3 super chat from maybe next time. He says, a a somber meeting of prayer and reflection in honor of St. George. Some coins for the collection plate. A gold-plated horse drawn hers is not enough. Well, thank you maybe next time. Um, Go over here. There's nothing for me over there. I don't know what happened to the Goyam TV guys. My stream's gone. I don't know what happened. And so, Rogue12 says, damn, I haven't seen this show in months. Well, hey, man, you should be on my email list. Go to ChristopherCantwell.net slash subscribe. Get on the email list. And if you have a, uh, if you have an email address that's at, like, Charter or Spectrum or Roadrunner or any of those companies that are under that, you might give them a call. And you might tell them that they are blocking, for no good reason, the mail server for SurrealPolitics.com and ChristopherCantwell.net. I've been trying to contact them. They won't talk to me. I contacted them on Twitter. They said, give me your customer number. I said, I'm not your customer, stupid. I'm contacting you because dozens of your customers are not getting the email messages that they signed up for, and it's because you're not following the simple mail transfer protocol, okay? And there's... You know, there are things that I can do to fix this, like, but it's kind of ridiculous, okay? You know, the the spam filter thing is not supposed to be a political weapon, okay? And it's not supposed to be something that these companies do indiscriminately in order to, you know, to, to, to block off entire swaths of the internet and limit email uh, functions to, you know, three corporations, Okay. The simple mail transfer protocol is not something that's supposed to be a centralized function like Facebook and Twitter. The whole entire point of it is that anybody can run a mail server and deliver mail to people who seek to receive it. Now, I understand better than anybody. I used to work in a data center. I was responsible for the abuse department in that data center. I understand what spam is, and I understand that it will completely destroy the Internet if responsible people Don't do something to stop it. But if those people are irresponsible, and instead of trying to stop spam, 
they block, they wall off entire segments of the internet with no regard for whether the people are spamming or not. And then they refuse to speak to systems administrators on other networks. They're breaking, they're breaking the internet a lot faster than the spammers will. And so if you have signed up to get emails from me and it goes into your spam trap, I would hope that you check your spam trap from time to time. Check, make sure that that's not the case. And if it is, mark it as not spam and complain about it. Like tell, tell, the, tell your service provider, hey, don't just mark it as not spam. Info- hey, you're putting stuff in my spam folder with no justification. If you sign up for my email list and you don't get a confirmation, reach out to me. Use the contact form on my website, either ChristopherCantwell.net or SurrealPolitics.com. If you do that, I'll get that in my Proton mail address and I'll reply to you from there. And, you know, you might still have to check your spam folder. Who knows? But it won't be blocked. It won't be bounced and rejected on a connection level. And we'll discuss it because it's possible that your emails, your email, your email service provider is bouncing the message. Now, if you have Proton mail, which you can get, uh, go to uh, surrealpolitics.com slash get PM. You'll get a Proton Mail account for free or you can pay for it. There's features that you can pay for if you see fit to. If you do if you do sign up through my link, even if you decide to pay, if you get the free account and you sign up for a paid account a year down the road, I'll get a cut of that and that'll be fine. That'll be great. But, um, you know, in the meantime, it, it, the spam filter thing is actually like a major problem. And it's something that is now it's becoming the new political weapon and people should be conscious of that and take all measures to fix it. Um, we do this every Monday at 930 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. So if you're listening on some other platform at some other time, I would invite you to join us for the live program. We air on Rumble. We air on uh, Odyssey. We air on SurrealPolitics.com and on ChristopherCantwell.net slash live. Um, you know, we have other platforms that we stream to, but it doesn't make sense to list them all because, you know, can barely keep Rumble and Odyssey working. I can't keep track of all these other guys and all of their problems. You get the idea. There's the Get Me Radio app. Usually works today, halfway through the show. For some reason, my audio streaming app peaked at 100% CPU and I had to close it. But usually you can listen on the Get Me Radio app. So if you're like in the car or something, you don't want to be distracted driving, looking at me, making faces at you the whole time. You can listen using the Get Me Radio app. You just listen to the audio. And it's usually, you know, I understand. I'm a good-looking guy. You want to see this thing. I get it. But most people actually listen to the audio version. Most people are downloading the podcast, which you can do, by the way. Serial Politics is available on, like, wherever you get your podcasts. We're not banned from everything yet. Maybe after today. Who knows? You know, I just, I question the wisdom of locking up Derek Chauvin. That's thought crime. But, uh, you know, if you get on, um, like, uh, Fountain.fm, pod, uh, Fountain.fm podcast or you get Podcast Addict, like, even my Uncensored production, you can get that no problem. You search Radical Agenda, you'll find it. Christopher Cantwell, you'll find it. And that'd be a great idea to do. But if you're using, like, iTunes or something and you want to give me a five-star review, you want to say, this is the greatest thing in radio, that'd be fantastic, you know. If you're watching on one of the video platforms and you haven't hit the thumbs up or the fire button or whatever the approval signal is, have I not earned that much? Have I really not earned that much? Please signal your approval. It helps. It it makes other people see the stuff. You know, it's very good for you to do that. It's very helpful and I appreciate it. And if you want to help more than that, you can pay me. ChristopherCampwell.net slash donate will tell you all the ways that you can fork over cash. I got the, the cash app. 
you know, uh, that's edgy Chris. I've got strike payments. I've got the givesendgo.com slash SPM. I got all that crypto stuff. You can send me any kind of cryptocurrency you want. If you don't see the cryptocurrency that you want to send, just let me know. And I will gladly give you a key. I got that Exodus wallet so I can take them all. Uh, and I'll happily, uh, I'll give you a key for the cryptocurrency you want to send that uh, is not listed there. And we'll do all of those things. And then we'll be back Wednesday for the members only show because, you know, you already did the joint thing. You're already a member, right? Uh, SurrealPolitics.com slash join. It's 10 bucks a month because you guys are all right. I like you. You do Agenda 33 for the checkout code. You get the first three months at 33% off. It comes out to like $6.70. And then you get discounts in the shop and all that stuff. And you can join us for the members only shows. On Wednesdays at 9.30, it's realpolitics.com slash member dash chat. I should probably shorten that URL, but, you know, I put the link in the in the thing. And you get the emails, of course. I send them out before, and you I, you already know to sign up for the email list. So you got that all figured out. And we'll be back then for that. And then Friday, I'll be back cursing up a storm on the, uh, on the Uncensored production. And, you know, I took it easy on Friday. You know, when I left the member chat last Wednesday, I was like, hey, you know, I don't think I'm even going to apologize for the Fs on Friday, but then I had Augustus Invictus there, and he's actually, like, respectable. And so I was only cursing at my equipment, and I really kept it to a minimum. But who knows? You know, maybe this Friday, you never know. With all that's going on, I might have to might have to let it go. So I'll see you then, if not sooner. Thank you very much for tuning in to Surreal Politics, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much to the people who make this thing possible, you know. I got an Amazon wish list, too. You could buy me some. I'd be cool. You know? Good night.